Now let's uh, turn for our second reading and also for our text uh, again to the book of Genesis, but this time to chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. And uh, in the passage that we're going to read, uh, there's, there's an account of the first meeting between Jacob, the old patriarch, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You'll remember that Jacob's son, Joseph, has been in Egypt for many years, and he's been instrumental in preserving Egypt in a time of great famine. And now uh, Joseph's family, uh, his father and the rest of his brothers and all in the household, are coming down to Egypt. And here we have a meeting between the aged patriarch Jacob and Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So reading at verse 7. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are one hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. And if you move down to verse 27 in the chapter, just towards the end at verse 27, so Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the length of Jacob's life was one hundred and forty-seven years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favour in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. And uh, let's turn for our text to that meeting between Jacob and Pharaoh. Let's read again verses 7 to 10. Genesis 47, verses 7 to 10. Joseph brought in his father Jacob 
and set him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Now with the Lord's help and guidance, I want to look with you this morning at the unexpected question and answer that we find in these few verses. The question is Pharaoh's question. All he asks Jacob in this meeting is, how old are you? And Jacob's answer is unexpected too. Not just the age, which is 130, but the way he describes his life. Few and evil, he says, have been the days of the years of my pilgrimage. So it's an unexpected question from Pharaoh and an unexpected answer from Jacob. Now, as I mentioned before the reading, this is the first meeting between these two men. And uh, there doesn't seem to be much in it on the face of it, but like other brief meetings in the Bible, there's more to it than meets the eye. Uh, Just last week, I referred to that brief meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek, the king of Salem. We read that too. There's only three verses in it covering the meeting in Genesis 14. But if you turn to the letter to the Hebrews, and you can do that another time, and in chapter 7, you'll see that these three verses are surprisingly full of spiritual significance. And you'll find that they are full of Christ. Now, if you had just read the narrative there of that meeting, you wouldn't have seen any of that really. But Hebrews tells us just to look a little deeper. Now, strangely enough, there's a connection between that meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek and this one here between Jacob and Pharaoh. It's not an obvious connection, but we'll see it as we go on. Now, again, on the face of it and in the world's way of looking at things, there's no doubt who the greatest is in this meeting between Jacob and Pharaoh. Uh, And I stress as the world would look at it. On the one hand, you have Jacob, and although we know that he's got a promise from God that he will become a great nation, there isn't any sign of that yet. All you could say of him, I suppose the most grand thing you could say about him in worldly terms, is that he is at the head of a very significant Semitic family in the land of Canaan. On the other hand, at this point in world history, I think it would be fair to say that Pharaoh was the most powerful individual in the world. And he would expect everyone to acknowledge that. He's not used to deferring to anybody. He doesn't. In fact, he expects everyone to defer to himself. But the first thing that strikes you regarding this brief meeting when you look at it closely is that the roles are surprisingly reversed. You'll notice that Jacob begins this little conversation and Jacob ends it. 
You'll notice too that Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't bless him. And Jacob, in fact, blesses him twice. He blesses him at the beginning of the meeting. The moment he meets Pharaoh, he blesses him. And he blesses him right at the end of the meeting. He blessed him and went out from before Pharaoh. And you'll notice that although Jacob is the the primary speaker, you'll notice that Pharaoh doesn't really say anything at all. He only speaks once, and that is to ask Jacob's age. Now, I'll admit that these facts as they stand don't yield much, but what they do, like other parts of Scripture written mysteriously, what they do is they invite us to go a little further into them. What's the reason for this role reversal? How come Jacob can come into the presence of the most powerful man in the world as though he had the authority? And how come Pharaoh, who has all the authority, seems to be content to take this subordinate role? And I suppose in a way that's the most interesting one. Why does Pharaoh assume this lowly position? Well, friends, I would suggest that there are uh, three reasons for that. And when we consider who Pharaoh is, when we consider his background and his privilege and all that, these three things speak well of Pharaoh. Uh, I'll come back to that later. But let's look at what these things are. I think, first of all, Pharaoh accepts a lowlier place because he is struck by Jacob's seniority. He is struck by his age. Now, some people uh, look younger than they are. But it's obvious that Jacob showed his years. He wasn't just a very old man, but he looked that way. Pharaoh is so struck by his aged appearance that his first question, he can't help it, is how old are you? Now, there's something about being in the presence of old age that ought to humble people. All things being equal, age demands respect. I think many of you will have noticed that it's not so much the case these days. You'll find quite a lot of children and young people who don't seem to defer to old age at all. That's one of the signs of degeneration in our society and perhaps even civilization. But it's something that God urges on you to be respectful to old age, and he urges it on you to urge it upon your children, that they defer to age and that they be respectful of age. For example, Leviticus 19.32, you shall rise up before the grey-headed and honour the presence of an old man. I am the Lord. And that's simply in virtue of their old age. You shall rise up before the grey-headed and you shall honour the presence of an old man, I am the Lord. Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, who was a minister, says, don't rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as to a father. Now, I'm now old enough to remember a different day when this kind of respect was very much taught to children. And as I say, it's a bad sign when youth is assertive or arrogant in the presence of age. 
but it's got a wider application too. I mentioned there that when Paul said to Timothy not to rebuke an older man, that Timothy was a minister. It's important for office bearers and ministers to remember these things too, to respect old age in the courts of the church and in the congregation of God's people. Um, It's not a good thing to see people who have office and who have office at perhaps a slightly younger age begin to trample upon age and experience in a congregation as though office gave them a right to do that. Now it says a lot for Pharaoh that in spite of his office and in spite of his power as the most powerful man in the world, he can still show this respect to a man of age and he takes a lowlier place because he is conscious of the presence of great age. Now, the second reason he takes a lowlier place is because he is conscious of his indebtedness. Not so much to Jacob, but to Jacob's son, Joseph. It's through Joseph that the land was saved from famine. And it was through Joseph that Pharaoh's throne has actually now been strengthened. A fifth of the produce of Egypt's land is now stored up in Pharaoh's storehouses, thanks to the wisdom of Joseph, which of course came from the Lord. Now, it's another mark of a degenerating society when people are ungrateful and unthankful. They just take, 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 and sometimes they don't even bother to say thanks, never mind to show thanks and to remember the kindness to remember it for days and months and years to come. But it's good to see that Pharaoh honours the good that's been done to him. And he doesn't just show that honour to Joseph. He shows it to Joseph's family too. Now, can I just urge upon you not to forget those who show great kindness to yourself? And if things happen to go wrong for them, and if things turn evil for them or turn difficult for them, You remember the kindness that they show you. Is that not the reason the preacher, Ecclesiastes of Solomon, tells us to cast our bread upon the waters, that it will return to us after many days, not to be slow to give a portion to seven or to eight, because who knows what evil may come, come upon ourselves, and when we might have that need. The Lord Jesus himself told us, that with the mammon of unrighteousness, we were to do good with it, so that those we help with it will receive us into their everlasting habitations. In other words, if the, he quotes that text, sorry, he he speaks these words in connection with the, the rich man and Lazarus. If he had done good to the rich man with what he had, um, instead of being distant from Lazarus in eternity, Lazarus would have welcomed him into the everlasting habitation of heaven. So when people are kind to you, remember that kindness and show kindness in return. But can I say at the same time to be wary of expecting too much from people? Um, We need to learn that as Christians, just to be wary of expecting too much from people. Joseph himself learned that lesson. He learned it when he was in prison. You'll remember that there were two in prison with him, the chief butler and the chief baker in Pharaoh's household. And 
Joseph was the means through a dream of uh, delivering the chief butler. And uh, when the chief butler was let loose from the dungeon, uh, Joseph said to him, don't forget me, says when, when all's well with you. But of course he forgot him. We read that the chief butler forgot him. How easily people do that. Receive kindness, and receive mercy, and you just go on. And when things get better with you, you forget that they ever showed you that kindness. So again, you see, I want you to notice that it's a good sign in Pharaoh that he remembers the kindness that's done to himself. And he doesn't just honor Joseph, but he honors those connected with Joseph. It reminds us of David uh, after Jonathan was killed. He wanted to show kindness to someone in the household of Jonathan. And so he did when he discovered Mephibosheth, who was lame in both his feet. He showed him kindness for Jonathan's sake. So Pharaoh accepts a lowly place because he is conscious of old age and he is conscious of a deep sense of gratitude. But more than that, more than that, the third reason that he takes a lowly place is because he is struck with Jacob's godliness. Now, that may not be so obvious on the face of the brief narrative, but really it should be. I think it is this impression that he has of Jacob's godliness that makes him content to be blessed. Now, I'm sure some of you have had the experience, perhaps uh, when you were younger, even of uh, an older person uh, coming into your presence. And even if you're not a believer at the time, you're conscious that they are. There's something of God about them. There's much of God about them. And it solemnizes you in the meeting. It solemnizes you. And Pharaoh is so solemnized here that he's content to be blessed. When Jacob enters, Jacob blesses him. When Jacob leaves, and he seems to leave at his own, not because he's dismissed, but because it's time for him to go, he blesses him then too. Now, you shouldn't think of this blessing as a kind of Hebrew equivalent of hello and goodbye. Although some of you might know that goodbye uh, itself as a word has a lot more in it than we think. Um, goodbye is a shortened form of God be with you, or perhaps even God bless you, but it's generally thought of as a shortened form of God be with you. That's a reminder that uh, people spoke of the Lord far more often in their meetings and their departures. But there's more to this blessing than hello and goodbye. This is a patriarchal blessing and a solemn utterance from God that God wants Jacob to bestow upon Pharaoh on his meeting and on his departure. And in that sense, I think we can compare it with Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham. You've got another surprising role reversal there. I know that some may argue that on the face of it, Melchizedek is uh, the greater than Abraham, but not really if you've been following the narrative and if you think about it. Abraham is a very powerful man. He comes from out of the Chaldees, and he has over 300 um, soldiers in his own private army, as well as a vast household. He has just defeated a four-king-strong coalition, and he's defeated them and liberated the king of Sodom, 
and liberated Lot, his own nephew, and so on. This is a very powerful man. Melchizedek, on the other hand, although he's great before God, we don't really notice that at first, he is only the king of Salem. Now, when we think of Salem, of course, we think of it by its longer name, Jerusalem. But at this point, it isn't Jerusalem. It's really a small, insignificant town. And many of these kings were kings really of very small areas. And um, when these two meet, it is so different to the other meetings that Abraham has with people. Uh, when, when he meets Pharaoh, a different Pharaoh, and uh, when he meets the king of the Philistines and so on, you don't get the kind of feelings that you get in this meeting. And the strange thing is that spiritually here, you would expect, you would expect Abraham to take the initiative spiritually, but no Melchizedek takes it. And in fact, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And you'll notice that like Jacob's blessing of Pharaoh, this blessing only goes one way. Abraham doesn't bless Melchizedek back. He feels he shouldn't. He feels he shouldn't. The kind of blessing Melchizedek gives is is a one-way blessing that's to be given by him and taken by Abraham. And similarly here, the blessing that Jacob gives to Pharaoh is a one-way blessing, a blessing that Pharaoh doesn't return. And the reason for that comes out in the letter to the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews explains what's going on in that brief meeting. Uh, That's the meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek. Abraham strangely gives Melchizedek a tithe of all that he has, a tenth, because he recognizes him to be a priest of God. But more than that, in connection with the blessing, Hebrews lays a great stress on the blessing. It says that Melchizedek blesses Abraham because the less is blessed by the greater, he says. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says. The less is blessed by the greater, or to turn that sentence round, the greater blesses the less. So Melchizedek is conscious of who he is and who he represents. He represents Christ himself, and he represents the office of Christ as a priestly king. And therefore, he doesn't yield to Abraham. Rather, he blesses Abraham. Now, I think the same thing exactly is happening in connection with Jacob and Pharaoh. Both parties are conscious of God. Just as Abraham and Melchizedek were conscious of God, So are Jacob and Pharaoh. Jacob carries the presence of God with him into the meeting, and Pharaoh, because of who he is, is conscious of that too. I'll say something more about Pharaoh in a little while, but you're not to think of this Pharaoh like the later Pharaohs that resisted the Lord. You're to think of this Pharaoh very differently from that. So they're conscious of God. Jacob's conscious of God when he blesses him, and Pharaoh is conscious of God when he receives the blessing. Now. Jacob, because he is a humble man, he wouldn't hesitate to bow before Pharaoh. He wouldn't hesitate to honor him. Um, But here he feels that's not his role. Pharaoh, on the other hand, is accustomed to receiving honor from everybody. And he doesn't have to give that honor to anybody. But the fear of God's on them both. Um, You can't help but feel that there's something good in the heart of this Pharaoh towards the Lord God of Israel. But as I said, let's leave him there for now. I'll come back to him in a while. I want to turn with you to Jacob and his unexpected reply. When he's asked, how old are you? He doesn't just give his age. He gives us a view of his life. 
in the process. Not just how old he is, but how he feels about life. Now, when he reveals this age, 130, Pharaoh is clearly amazed. Jacob effectively says, why are you so surprised? I haven't lived as long as my fathers have lived. What seems long to you, 130 years, feels very differently to me. In fact, he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my pilgrimage. Now, these words might strike you as um, wistful words or maybe even regretful words. As someone looking over his life and looking at the past and wishing maybe it had been different. My life could have been better. Instead, it's been few and evil. But I can understand that, but I, I, I don't agree with it. What does Jacob means mean when he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my pilgrimage? Well, first of all, let's take this word evil. Now, it's very clear in the scripture elsewhere that this word that's translated evil can also mean difficult, calamitous, calamitous or disastrous. In fact, we have a glaring example of it like that in Isaiah, where the Lord says that he creates evil. Now, of course, he does not create evil as we know it. What he means is a calamity, a disaster upon the land. Now, it's in that sense that we're to understand the word here. Few and difficult, very difficult have been the days of the years of my pilgrimage. Now, clearly, Jacob's life was very, very hard. And it's not difficult to say that it was harder than Abraham's. Abraham had his share of trials, but his difficulties don't come anywhere near to Jacob's. Isaac, apart from the difficulties that he had in his own family, doesn't appear to have had much in the way of trial at all, although, of course, these trials can be very hard. But Jacob's life, I mean, apart from the fact that God was working in it and that God turned it to the good, but apart from that, it reads almost like a tragedy. He, he was afflicted from his youth. He lived in the shadow of his wicked twin brother. He was overlooked all through his youth by a misguided father who was blind to his virtues and who was besotted by Esau. He was exiled from his home for 21 years. He was exploited at work by his unscrupulous father-in-law, Laban. He was deceived into a marriage that he didn't desire with all the consequences that that took into his life. He was severely troubled by his sons. He lost the only son in whom he was finding fellowship and the life of God, Joseph, whom he loved. And he mourned for that son for years, like a man half dead, believing that his son was dead. Now, any of these things on their own is enough, but to have them all together. I mean, it's a reminder to us, if we need it, that life has or can have many evils and many calamities for the people of God. And one of the things that strikes us is that some have them even more than others. But, but when these evils and calamities do come, we, we, we're to remember with Job that we respond in faith. The Lord gave and the Lord take away. Shall we receive good 
he says, from the hand of the Lord, and shall we not receive evil also? In other words, if we, if we worship the Lord in fair weather, well, what is that worth? Shall, shall we not receive the evil or the calamity as well? It's worth remembering when we get these things that we're not alone in our troubles. Jacob had, had so much more than probably you have or than I have, and we are no better than our fathers in these things. We can't expect to go through a Christian pilgrimage in this life without these evils. Others have had them before, and others have them now. You probably actually wouldn't need to look too far from your house to find a brother or a sister who's got a more difficult providence. Very often it's behind a closed door, and we don't know what's behind closed doors. We assume people are happier behind closed doors, but we sometimes don't know the havoc. We're to make sure in these calamities and evils that the Lord is our portion and that we trust in him. And uh, if we do that, and if we, if we look heavenward, if we set our mind and our affections on things above where Christ is at the right hand of God, and if we contemplate that glory to come, we'll see all our evils and our afflictions as light afflictions. So he says, my days have been evil and difficult. And if you think me old, I wear my age. And I wear my age because of how hard my life has been. But strangely, he also describes his 130 years as few. Few. Now, <clears throat> he may mean that in, in one sense because he's got a shorter lifespan thus far than Abraham and Isaac. He may also just mean it as being few in the, in the retrospect. And uh, we all see life like that in retrospect. Um, as you get older, you certainly feel it passing quicker. But when you look back, you feel that there was nothing there at all. Where did my childhood go? Where did my youth go? Where did my manhood or my womanhood go? It just seems so, so little in the retrospect. But, you know, <laughs> Jacob isn't looking at his life in the retrospect. He's looking at it in prospect. In other words, he's looking at what's yet to come. What's yet to come. In other words, he says, my 130 years doesn't look small looking back on it, he says, but it looks small looking forward at the vast eternity to come. In the light of that, he says, my days are few. And the reason it's like that is because he sees his life as a pilgrimage. The days of the years of my pilgrimage, he says, are 130 years. The days of my years of my pilgrimage. Now, a pilgrim, as I've often told you, is someone on a journey. Someone who is passing through. God's people are often referred to as strangers and pilgrims. You'll find that expression appearing, I think, four times in the Old Testament. Stranger and pilgrim. It appears in the New as well. There's a difference between the two. The stranger is someone belonging to another country. That reminds us that as people of God, we don't actually belong here. 
The word pilgrim is the stranger passing through on a journey. That reminds us that we are passing through to the place that we belong to. Strangers here going home. So here is our pilgrimage. And uh, as the writer to the Hebrews says, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were conscious that they were going to a better country, to a place of glory. And the exceeding weight of that glory, as Paul described it, the exceeding weight of the glory is so great that it makes all our afflictions here seem light. Light. Now sometimes, friends, our afflictions feel very heavy. And we use the word heavy for how we feel that I'm heavy. I'm burdened. I'm burdened with my afflictions. But what you need to do is move to a another sphere in your mind that has another gravity and, and something that makes your burden something that you can carry and carry more easily. And that's what happens when you look heavenward and when you live in the heavenly places and you remind yourself that you're a stranger here and you're on a journey home, suddenly this heavy burden starts to become light. Not only that, the vast expanse of eternity is so great in time that the longest life here in this world is just fleeting in comparison with just a few days. My life has been evil and it is few, but I'm on a pilgrimage and I'm going home. Now, after saying that, Jacob pronounces his second blessing and he turns round and leaves. And we're tempted, of course, in our thoughts just to follow Jacob for the rest of his life and to follow Joseph and the family. But should we forget Pharaoh quite that easily? One of the things that's interesting, you see, is that the the Bible always looks out beyond the immediate church of God in this world. There, there are people here and there in the world who, well, the Lord has his eye on them. And he works with them according to the privileges that they have. And as I said a few weeks ago, you know, the Lord has his way of bringing light to those who are looking for it. He has his way of doing it. There's Melchizedek there, miles away from Abraham. But there he is as a man of God and a priest of the Most High God. God has his way of reaching Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I mean, who would have thought, if you had followed the career of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who would have thought that that powerful monarch, that proud powerful monarch, would have ended up converted? But one of the purposes, one of the purposes that God had in bringing Daniel and the people of Judah into captivity in Babylon, was for the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't just for the humbling of the church and the teaching of the church and her training and her repentance and her discipline. It was for the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Abraham, on his brief sojourn into Egypt, is brought into connection with that Pharaoh there and then. And his interchange with that Pharaoh seems to indicate that he has done good for that Pharaoh. And the, the little we discover of that Pharaoh indicates somebody who was open to guidance and open, open to the teaching of God. And it's interesting that God sent Abraham down to Egypt. And the purpose there, again, is not just to teach Abraham regarding taking wrong steps, but it's to touch the soul of somebody 
that was touched while Abraham was taking a wrong step. Is that not an interesting thing? And here you have another Pharaoh. What can we say? But God is dealing bountifully with him. Uh, he's taken Joseph into his, into his sphere of life. And Joseph has revealed God to him. Um, God used Joseph to interpret a dream that he gave to Pharaoh himself. God used Joseph to preserve his kingdom. And in fact, Pharaoh is so struck with this that he gives Joseph another name. I don't know if you've noticed that before in the Bible, but Pharaoh renames Joseph. He gives him an Egyptian name, which means God speaks and God lives. And isn't that an interesting name that he gave him? God speaks and lives. The fact of the matter is that Pharaoh here has found a place in Jacob's prayers. He already had a place in Joseph's prayers, and, and that's a wonderful thing to have for a man who's come from nowhere. He found a place in Joseph's life and prayers, and now he's found a place in Jacob's prayers. And isn't that a good place to be in, friends? If God has so worked in your providence that you've been brought close to a Christian, a Christian has been brought close to you, and they're aware of your situation, and you are now in their prayers. You don't know the half of what a privilege that is. Of course, you could misuse it. You could make a pillow of it. You could rest on it. But taken in itself, it is a blessing and a mercy. God hasn't drawn near to this Pharaoh to judge him, as he would do to a later Pharaoh. By the time Moses came to the later Pharaoh, it was too late. That was a hard Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. That's how he's described. Another king arose in Egypt who knew not Joseph. This Pharaoh most certainly does know Joseph, and he does know Jacob. So God doesn't draw near to this Pharaoh to judge him. He draws near him to bless him. And uh, I tend to think that the reason for that is not just that he would have a place in Jacob's prayers, but that he would have a place in the house of many mansions too. It's, it's an unexpected meeting. Pharaoh is virtually silent, except that he's struck by his age and seniority and godliness. But Jacob is moved twice to bless him. And in so doing, few and evil have been the days of the years of my pilgrimage. But who cares in a way? Because the pilgrim's destination is what matters. And when the pilgrim reaches that destination, nothing else matters. Under the exceeding weight of glory. Let's uh, sing in conclusion in Psalm 39. Psalm 39. And in the combined book, that's on page 258. And we sing to the tune Balerma. At verse 4, Psalm 39, at verse 4. 